This is episode number 132, Optimizing Your Gut Health with Dr. B. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. You are not the victim of the genetic profile that was handed to you. You have control over your health, which I find to be very empowering. And it's your choices during your lifetime that ultimately will determine whether or not you actually manifest disease. You will have predisposition. There are certain things that because of my family, I am more prone to. And there's certain things that I'm fortunate because of my family that I'm not as prone to. But it's my lifestyle choices that ultimately will lead to the manifestation of those conditions. And I am super, super excited about today's episode because it's something I've been wanting to talk about on the show for a long time. And I was really excited to get an expert and a medical doctor in gut health on the show. Before we get into it, I just wanted to say thank you so much for subscribing and for listening to this show. It's so awesome to see your screenshots that you do whenever you share the show on Instagram and to get to connect with you individually and also to read your emails from your favorite episodes. So I'm so happy that the show is bringing you a lot of value and I certainly get a lot out of it as well. I also wanted to thank the new patrons to my Patreon subscription, Mark and Laisha this week. Thank you so much for your support. And Patreon is a crowdfunding website where you can kick a few bucks a month to the show to help keep it going. The podcast is definitely a labor of love and a passion project. So I really appreciate anything you guys want to give to the show. If you're finding value, you want to give back. That's cool. So it's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the Sonia Looney show. And thank you to those of you who have been continuing patrons for quite some time. I really appreciate it. And I seriously could not do it without you. Another exciting thing is those of you who pre-ordered the Moxie and Grit jerseys off moxieandgrit.com should be receiving them this week. And I've seen a few people in the jerseys already, and that's pretty cool. We have only a couple left. We have a few women's sizes and very limited men's sizes left. But if you wanted to grab one, hopefully your size is still available and you can do that. We'll also be doing another run of Moxie and Grit jerseys that will be more of a baggy free ride style jersey and stay tuned for that because I need to get that up and running pretty soon. And last, the topic of today's episode is plant-based nutrition. So if you're interested in plant-based nutrition, I want to invite you to my Plant Power Tribe Facebook group. It's free and you don't have to eat a plant-based diet to join. You just have to be plant curious. And it's a really awesome group. There's over 1,600 people in there. And people are posting interesting things pretty regularly. So check it out. It's Plant Power Tribe Facebook group with Sonia Looney. I think it's facebook.com slash group slash plant powered tribe. That's a tongue twister. And I also have a Plant Power Tribe Instagram account that is more about me posting tips about plant-based diets. And I also have my own cookbook that I self-published. And currently it's a digital cookbook, Plant Power Tribe. And you can get that at moxingrit.com as well. And I'm working on getting a hard copy made or hard copies made. So those of you who don't like digital cookbooks can actually have a hard copy in your hands whenever you want to make simple and delicious plant-based meals. 
All right. So let's get down to business. Let's get into today's awesome guests. So today's guest's name is Dr. Will Bolsowitz, and he likes to be called Dr. B. It's a little bit easier, but he is an MD, a gastroenterologist, and is also internationally recognized as a gut health expert. He's incredibly passionate about the healing power that lives inside of you, your gut microbiota. How many of you guys have heard of the gut microbiome before? How many of you have heard of the gut flora? Well, here's an interesting fact for you that our gut contains 10 times the amount of microorganisms than the human cells in our entire body. So in theory, our body is actually only 10% human cells. Isn't that nuts? The emerging field in gut health has made huge strides in how we view our health and how we treat diseases and also how we practice medicine. And a newsflash, everything you put in your mouth also feeds your gut flora because it goes through your digestive system. And many autoimmune diseases live in the gut and the bacteria in our gut even has an effect on neurotransmitters in our brain like serotonin. And here's another fun fact from this episode. 90% of serotonin is produced in the gut and this has a tremendous impact on depression. So that means that our gut can dictate parts of our personality and our mental health. So how do you make sure that you have a healthy gut? Well, that is where Dr. B comes in, and his medical training involves 16 years at America's elite institutions. He completed a bachelor's degree from Vanderbilt University, a medical degree from Georgetown University, and a master of science in clinical investigation from Northwestern University. He was also the chief medical resident at Northwestern and the chief gastroenterology fellow at UNC and received the highest award given by both his residency and fellowship. And if you're not impressed yet, he completed an epidemiology fellowship at UNC's prestigious Gilling School of Global Public Health. He's published more than 20 papers, and he's presented more than 40 times at national meetings, and he is the author of a highly anticipated book on gut health, and that's coming out pretty soon, so I can't wait to get my hands on that book whenever he's done. The biggest takeaway from this show today is that you should eat as much variety of whole plant foods as you can. Diversity is key, and that's something I put into practice in this episode. What else are you going to learn? Well, you're going to learn what is the microbiome if you haven't heard of it, how gut flora affects our personality and our mental health, decoding cravings, diseases and the gut, and how to heal diseases with the gut. The study that changed how Dr. B practices medicine and ultimately changed the way that he ate. Demystifying antibiotics, probiotics, and prebiotics. Are we sterilizing our world with all of the sanitizers and soap? The best foods for your gut, the danger of fad diets, and even if kombucha is good for you. So this is an awesome episode. You might want to listen to it twice, but that's enough for me. Let's get into this awesome and really informative and inspiring show with Dr. B. Dr. B, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to come on your show. You've had some amazing guests and I'm honored to be a participant in the show as well. So it's really cool to meet you. Well, I've always wanted to have a gut health expert on the show, especially in the last few years. I've learned so much about the microbiome. And then the time I spent studying you and listening to other shows you've been on, I learned so much just from listening from those. So I'm so excited about this conversation. 
That's awesome. I love that. I mean, you know, I think that the thing you and I were just talking about this off the air just a moment ago, that the cool thing about podcasting is that we can like really take a deep dive on complex topics and really break it down for people in a way that makes it much more digestible so that people can actually understand what's going on. And, you know, the world of gut health and the microbiome is exploding. It is exciting. I really, truly believe this is not a fad. This is changing the way that we think about human health, not just digestive health, but the entire body. And so it's nice that, you know, we get an opportunity to give your listeners a little view into what's happening out there with the science and where things are going. I'm sure that some of the listeners have never even heard of gut health or the microbiome. I'm sure some of them have, but for those who are basically, this is the first time they've heard about it, where's a good place for us to start for them? Let's kick it back to like 2005, 2006. Right, <laughs> let's, yeah, let's like take a walk <laughs> down memory lane and go to a place where at that time I was wrapping up medical school. I was at Georgetown in DC and I decided around then that I wanted to be a GI doctor and that motivation for me had nothing to do with gut health. And I think that surprises a lot of people because now I'm like this gut health guy and this is what I talk about. But that's because we didn't really know anything. And there were very few papers being published on the topic of gut health in this period of time back then. And part of the challenge is that we lacked the ability to really study or understand these communities of microorganisms that live inside of us. So, and there's five specific types of microorganisms that I'm referring to. And the main one is bacteria. Bacteria are the dominant player when we talk about this community of microorganisms, the microbiome. But the other ones include fungi, or some may call them yeasts, and also parasites. It sounds kind of weird or creepy, but in some cases, they can actually be good and healthy for us. Most of us, frankly, in the United States don't have them, though. And archaea, which are my personal favorites, they're not bacteria, they're not fungi, they're something different. And they literally, as far as we can tell, are the first life on our planet. There's evidence that archaea were on our planet 3.8 billion years ago, and which is crazy because we didn't have oxygen on this planet until about 2.5 billion years ago. So they lived on this planet for over a billion years with absolutely no oxygen. And they are hardy, they are resilient, they live inside volcanoes or at the bottom of the ocean, miles deep in a rift vent and in your colon. <laughs> so <laughs> also they can are be quite... a volcano for some people. <laughs> <laughs> for some people that is a volcano <laughs> or a rift vent. And then the last is viruses. We have actually tons of viruses and viruses are not actually living creatures. Everything else that I named are actually living creatures, viruses. It's hard to explain exactly what they are, but they do have an effect or influence on this community as well, these organisms. And so, you know, so going kicking it back to like 2005, the only ones that we could really study were the ones that we could culture. And so we only knew of 200, maybe 300 specific types of bacteria that lived inside the human gut. And then there was this laboratory breakthrough, which allowed us to study bacteria that you can't grow on a culture plate. And that was huge because 99% of the bacteria that live inside of us are what we define as anaerobic which means that they thrive in an environment where there is no oxygen. And so you can't do them on a culture plate. But with this new technique, we could finally identify them. And very rapidly, we discovered, boom, 
there are like at least 15,000 species. We thought there were 300. There are at least 15,000 species, potentially estimates as many as 36,000 species of bacteria that can live inside the human body or on the skin. And, you know, imagine this type of discovery where you discover this many different species all at once. And now here we are, and we look at this community, the microbiome, and we see that there are literally about 39 trillion microorganisms that inhabit the human body, whether it's on your skin, in your mouth, in your colon, which is the densest population, or in women inside the vagina. And we see that there are 39 trillion of them. And the crazy part is that that is more than you have human cells. That's more than you have human cells. In fact, if you were to take the red blood cells and the platelets, which are very, very basic cells, like they don't carry DNA in the traditional sense, if you were to throw them out and just to look at the regular cells that have organelles, that have a nucleus, that have DNA and all those things, you would discover that we have 10 times more microorganisms as a part of us than we do actually human cells. So you are in theory, 10% human. <laughs> and those are the types of things that we have started to understand since this 2006-ish breakthrough. And now here we are, and we're like trying to decipher all of these different species, all of these different microorganisms, and how they influence human health all at once. And it's, it's quite overwhelming, but the amount of study that's coming out is also overwhelming because 80% of the studies that have been published have been published in the last five years. Wow. And I think it's really interesting how our microbiome affects things like depression or parts of our personality. Most people think of neurotransmitters in the brain and they don't realize that a lot of it is controlled by your gut. So can you talk about that? Yeah, there's so many parts of the human experience that are deeply intertwined with parts of us that aren't human. And that includes the brain-gut And so we have labeled the gut as the second brain, or it can also be called the enteric nervous system. And part of the reason why we've done that is because the gut functions on its own, independent of your brain. It does not require any sort of signal from your brain to work. And it produces actually 90% of the serotonin that's in your body. So serotonin is the happy hormone. If I want to treat someone for depression, I would give them Zoloft. And Zoloft is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And that is me trying to modulate or affect their serotonin levels. Well, 90% of the serotonin is produced in the gut. We actually have serotonin precursors that are able to cross the blood-brain barrier, get into the brain, and can affect brain chemistry. And there's ways that the gut actually communicates directly to the brain, specifically beyond just these neurotransmitters, specifically through the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is this like super powered phone line that allows the gut to talk to the brain and the brain to talk to the gut. And this is the reason why there's so many connections between the two and you can't really separate them. Because, you know, like I think about when I was in medical school, it was such a pressure cooker. It was so stressful. And you could like on test days, there was a line out the door of the bathroom. Oh no. All med students have IBS, I swear. All med students have IBS. And the reason why is because many of us being human manifest our stress in our gut. 
And that's just the way that we function. And it just speaks to what you're referring to, which is the brain gut connection, the fact that they communicate with each other, the fact that 90% of serotonin is produced in the gut, that 50% of dopamine is produced in the gut, that there are literally 30 neurotransmitters produced in the gut. And even the amount of innervation with nerves is mind-blowing because you have more nerves in your gut by a significant margin than you do in your spinal cord, which is designed to be full of nerves. But you have more nerves in your gut. There's only one part of your body that has more nerves than your gut, and that's your brain. That's it. So it's just really fascinating to think about the way that you can influence so many different things. And now we have studies showing us that like the gut may control your dietary impulses to some degree. Like cravings? Like your food cravings. You know, I think about like the pregnant woman who wants a pickle. And like, why is that? You know, have you ever heard of the people who eat dirt? No. There are people that have pica syndrome where actually, because they are deficient of certain minerals, many times iron, they feel this compulsion. Their body actually compels them to go and eat dirt. Hmm. And they do trying to restore this deficiency that the body has. And, you know, so the fascinating thing is that there are ways that the gut and these bacteria can signal the brain to control our impulses from a dietary perspective or to like make us crave certain specific foods, which could be bad or it could be good. And so it really kind of depends on the makeup of your microbiome. If you have a microbiome that loves sugar, then guess what you're going to crave? So, and that's kind of the way that it works. You know, there's other things too. I mean, there there's a connection between, I, I find this to be fascinating, the gut and pheromones and the way that we perceive, like, I think we all have had this experience, any adults who's listening to the show, where you may like the way that someone smells or you may not. And that's a personal sense. Like, hmm, I like the way that person smells or not. And that could be the pheromones. And that's an expression of our microbiome and us almost looking at compatibility, which raises the question, why do we kiss? Like, why do we kiss? I've often wondered that, but now that you make that connection, it's like, well, you're swapping bacteria. You're swapping over a million bacteria when you kiss. (laughs) So Um, there really are cooties. I knew it. (laughs) There really are cooties, but the cooties could be good. And we might be sharing bacteria in a good way. Right. So what about attraction? So, so like, are you attracted to people with a similar microbiome to you then with the pheromones or are you attracted to people so that with a different microbiome, that way you can have more diversity? Now, that is a good question. And I don't know that that would be an ideal study. Like, that would be so cool to see them actually do that and see how it plays out. Like to put people into a room, maybe like, gosh, what do you call it? Like fast dating where they're just like going around the room and have like one minute with each date. And they rate, like, what do they think, how they attracted they are to that person, and then test their microbiome at the end. Speed dating. Yeah, I mean, there could be See, I just showed you how this. old I am. There could be money behind this. Like, you could have a new dating app where you have to enter in, like, your primary gut flora species, and then they could match you based on that. That's really good. That's, but... like, <laughs> that's even better than eHarmony, which is, like, the 100 questions where they pair you. And by the way, I met my wife on eHarmony, so I'm a huge eHarmony oh, nice. fan. Oh yeah, no, I would I seriously may donate to eHarmony instead of donating to my college. <laughs> so, but anyway, because they introduced me to her, but that would be even better if you could pair people based upon their microbiome. That would be incredible. 
see, got these million dollar ideas here. <laughs> that, those are million dollar ideas. And it would be also interesting to look at their children because I think their children would be even more healthy. Now we're like getting really nerdy. Yeah, we are super nerding. So what about diseases? And there is some genetic predisposition to certain types of diseases and things like that. How much of that is determined by your gut and what you eat? It depends on which disease you're referring to. So there are some diseases that are completely genetically motivated, for example, cystic fibrosis, right? So if you have the cystic fibrosis gene, then you develop cystic fibrosis. And if you don't have the cystic fibrosis gene, then you do not develop it. So that there are some conditions that sort of follow those traditional genetic laws. But obviously, we all know that the majority of disease, we see this, the majority of disease, you know, let's look at like the top causes of death, heart disease, you know, coronary artery disease, and cancer and stroke and type 2 diabetes. So these are things that have emerged in the last 100 years. Okay. Autoimmune diseases, many autoimmune diseases have increased 500% in the last 50 years. Wow. That's a lot. And when you see emergence of disease on that scale, you ask the question, what is driving this? And is this genetically motivated or is this motivated by something different specifically our environment. And by our environment, I mean our lifestyle. And, you know, when you see that kind of rapid shift, that's not human genetics changing. You know, when it's a 500% increase in 50 years, that is not human genetics changing. So there's something else that's changing. And that would suggest that it's our lifestyle that is really what's changed. And, you know, you'll see different estimates depending on where you look. And that's partially because it's really hard to categorically broadly answer the question of what percentage of disease is caused by genetics. But if you look at it, most people would estimate it somewhere in the range of 20 or 25% of disease is motivated by genetics, which means that the vast majority of disease is not motivated by genetics. And, you know, basically what it means is that you are not the victim of the genetic profile that was handed to you. You have control over your health, which I find to be very empowering. And it's your choices during your lifetime that ultimately will determine whether or not you actually manifest disease. You will have predisposition. There are certain things that because of my family, I am more prone to. And there are certain things that I'm fortunate because of my family that I'm not as prone to. But it's my lifestyle choices that ultimately will lead to the manifestation of those conditions. And what we're referring to is really a also fascinating growing field, which is epigenetics. So let me give you an example. Let's talk about celiac disease for a moment. Celiac disease has increased 500% since the 1950s. So this is an example of one of those things that has exploded, blown up. And you know the question is, what's driving this? What's driving this dramatic increase in celiac disease? And there is a researcher who is at McMaster in Ontario. Her name is Elena Verdu. And basically, she has nicely shown us through a series of studies that there are three criteria that you have to meet to have celiac disease. Number one, you need the gene. The gene is extremely common. One out of three people have the gene. So if we had one more person on this call with us, then statistically, one of us would have the gene. Yet 97% of the people who have the gene never get the disease. What's the deal there? Part two, to get celiac disease, you need to be exposed to gluten. That is literally every single person in North America. We've all been there. 
So if you have the gene and you're exposed to gluten, what is it? What's the third part that ultimately determines whether or not you manifest the disease? And the answer to that question is your gut microbiome. Damage to the gut microbiome, which we call dysbiosis, is the third part of the manifestation of celiac disease. The people who develop celiac, by definition, have damage to their gut microbiome, and that essentially causes the gene to flip on. Think of that genetic code as a light switch. For the early parts of your life, the switch is not turned on, but when there is damage to the gut microbiome and there is the right confluence of factors, that switch gets flipped on, and now here we are, and you have celiac, and you can't take that away. That celiac disease, it's going to be there for the rest of your life. So and you, can't, you can't turn the light switch off once it's been turned on? Not on that. Not on that. But you know there are examples of other conditions that you can. For example, literally 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, Dean Ornish did some extremely forward-thinking studies that showed us that you can actually reverse coronary artery disease with diet and lifestyle. It was a whole foods, plant-based diet, and it involved exercise and meditation. But it was an amazing thing that he was able to show, not with pills, not with stenting, not with surgery. Diet and lifestyle can actually walk back coronary artery disease and make it better than it was before. Up to that point, we didn't know that that was possible. And he went on to do additional study with prostate cancer with the same results, not treating with chemo, not treating by removing the prostate. Alteration of diet, lifestyle led to improvement of prostate cancer. Now, that doesn't mean for the people who are listening right now, that doesn't mean that what I'm saying is that we should forego Western healthcare in favor of just making dietary changes and doing some exercise and thinking that we're going to heal ourselves of every single condition that exists. That would be kind of silly. To me, the approach that we need is to fire on all cylinders, take advantage of the best that we have in medicine, but also recognize that the root cause of most disease comes from our lifestyle. And so in order for us to make those changes, in order for us to really get to the root of our disease and fix those problems, we need to be open to the idea of lifestyle alteration. And in terms of the microbiome as well, I know that you definitely talk about eating a whole foods plant-based diet in order to repair and help the microbiome flourish. Where did you start finding this information out? Because a lot of the information we hear is, well, you know, eat a whole foods plant-based diet. And if you have heart disease, no oil, and you can reverse heart disease, you can make the plaques go away, but you don't hear about what's happening in the microbiome. So like, where did this connection happen? Right. So those Dean Ornish studies that I'm referencing occurred in the 90s. And, you know, and then we're here and we're talking about this breakthrough in research that occurred around 2006. So, you know, at the time that Dean Ornish is doing these studies, we knew very little about the microbiome and the way that it functions. But what's interesting is for me personally, just walking you through my personal story, I was like literally known among my friends for having the worst diet. Like I was, you know, take a circle of like 12 dudes and who's the guy who like all of his friends are like, oh, that's the worst. Oh my gosh, what's he doing? And that was me, you know, well known for going to Waffle House, Sonic, Jimmy John's, which I called kick me in the Jimmy John's. I don't know why, but I did. 
that was my diet in college and it continued, you know, I could get away with it when I was like 18, maybe even 20. But then when you continue to do that all the way through your 20s and you're approaching 30, you really can't get away with that anymore. And I gained a lot of weight and I was living in Chicago. I was uh, an internal medicine resident at Northwestern. I was the chief medical resident. And I was getting, like, basically my job was to take the big wigs at the hospital out for steaks. So that's what I was eating. I was eating steaks all the time. And um, if I wasn't eating that, I was eating Chicago-style dogs. And I gained so much weight. From college weight, I was up 45 pounds. So what happened is actually I met my wife, and she ate completely differently than me. I'd never been around someone that was vegan or vegetarian before. And I saw the way that she ate and she could eat with abundance, without restriction, but no weight gain, no concerns. And meanwhile, I'm over here and this was a few years later, I'm in my 30s and I'm like literally working out an hour a day. And then after working out, I'll run a five or a 10K or I'll jump in the pool for 50 laps. And despite that, I can't lose weight. I can put on muscle mass, but I can't lose weight. And I saw this and it just kind of inspired me. And I started to make these small changes, like a smoothie for dinner instead of fast food. And those small changes, I felt amazing. So what happened is I started to see these studies emerging, looking at the microbiome, connecting the microbiome to a plant-based diet. And one specific study blew my mind. In 2014, it was published in Nature. The lead author was someone named Lawrence David. He's from Duke. And there's also a very famous doctor named Peter Turnbaugh on the study. So in this 2014 Nature article, they took a group, a small group of people, and they basically gave them one of two diets for five days in a row. And then they checked their microbiome every day to see what was happening. So they either had a completely whole foods plant-based diet, no animal products at all, completely whole foods plant-based diet for five days, or then they switched them and did a completely animal product-based diet. So cheese, eggs, and meat, and that's it, no plants. And what blew my mind when I saw this, and this literally this study motivated me to make changes in my own life, and it also changed the way that I practice medicine. What blew my mind is that in less than 24 hours, in each individual person, you saw a dramatic shift in their microbiome when they would do one of these diets. If it was the whole food plant-based diet, you saw a shift towards healthy bacteria that were anti-inflammatory and that would actually help you to process those plants that you were eating and get the most out of them. Specifically, what I mean by get the most out of them is the release of what we call short-chain fatty acids, which are postbiotics. These postbiotic short-chain fatty acids are incredible. Like the most powerful thing in nutrition that no one is talking about. If you want to heal your gut, this is what you need. They repair the gut. They repair tight junctions. They get the right balance of bacteria. They actually prevent colon cancer. They lower cholesterol. They prevent type 2 diabetes. They actually cross the blood-brain barrier. They have healing effects throughout the entire body. That's what people got from the consumption of a whole food plant-based diet. You got an alteration of the gut bacteria, which was good, it was healthy, and it also allowed you to get more healthy nutrients out of your food. And then the flip side was the animal product-based diet. And what happened was actually kind of terrifying, honestly. 
that in less than 24 hours, you see that the healthy bacteria that produce these short chain fatty acids, which I'm telling you are so great in healing, they're dying off. And instead, they get replaced by unhealthy inflammatory type bacteria. One specific type that they saw emerge is something called Bilophila wadsworthia. And this Bilophila wadsworthia has been associated in numerous studies on numerous levels with the development of inflammatory bowel disease. So in those five days on that animal product-based diet, it's not that you developed inflammatory bowel disease. It's more that in less than 24 hours, you are already laying the foundation for the development of inflammatory bowel disease. And if you take the person who is genetically susceptible and you do this, guess what's going to happen? They're going to develop Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. So I guess the point from my perspective is that in my personal life, I start to make these changes, I'm feeling great, but then I, I have this reinforcement that's so powerful that I really, really needed, which is to see in the literature in my own field involving the microbiome, the effect of a whole food plant-based diet and how dramatically it can change things for people. Yeah, for me, it was, I thought that a high blood pressure was just genetic and I was screwed because everyone, my grandparents have it, my my dad has it. And I just thought, well, and my dad's like a fit guy, like he's like in super good shape. So I, I thought, well, I don't, I don't want that. And then whenever I saw Forks Over Knives, my husband actually is the one who was eating that way when I met him and convinced me to watch this documentary. And then I thought, well, wow, I actually have some control over my health. This is amazing. And also getting cancer is something that I was like really afraid of and thought about all the time. And yeah, eating a whole foods plant-based diet isn't a guarantee you won't get it, but it certainly helps you put your body in a state where you're not going to get it. Uh, well, 100%. Well, basically what you're doing is you're giving your body the best chance possible to have optimal health, right? And so it's not that there's, you know, if you eat the ideal diet, it's not that you are going to put yourself in a position where it's impossible for you to be sick. There still will be disease on the planet if everyone goes whole food, plant-based, no oil. There still will be disease. We're not going to live in utopia and live to 150 years old. But what we're doing is we are going to dramatically reduce the burden of disease. You are going to see people have more healthy years because the problem that we face that most people don't understand unless you're in healthcare like me and you're taking care of all these people. The problem that we currently have is that we, the healthcare system, we can keep you alive. We can keep you alive with these pills, with these procedures, with these surgeries, with our ICUs, with heavy duty antibiotics. We can keep you alive. We can prolong your life, but we are not providing quality of life because we can't continue to wait until people manifest disease to start our interventions. And we can't only offer interventions that fail to look at the root cause of disease. And the root cause of disease is our lifestyle. And so that to me is where our healthcare system is really, really missing on a huge opportunity. We need to recognize that the treatment of these conditions needs to involve getting at the root of disease, which is lifestyle, and trying to get that fixed in the process. I think that also people don't link immune system to the microbiome. And they know that if they take antibiotics, they need to take, you like the doctor tells you, well, you need to take a... Like a, like a probiotic? Probiotics, yeah, like all these biotics. So yeah, they tell you to take that, but they don't realize that when you take an antibiotic, you're actually killing a lot of your gut flora off. It's like dropping a bomb in your intestines. A hundred percent. There's so, oh gosh, you're giving me so much material to go with right there. <laughs> <laughs> 
So just to start off where you finish there, when you take an antibiotic, it's you're dropping napalm in there. This is not surgical precision. This is not some sort of futuristic laser that can identify just the bad guys and blast the bad guys with a laser. This is just bombing a city indiscriminately and hoping that you kill more bad guys than good guys. You will kill some bad guys. You're definitely going to kill a lot of good guys in the process. We know, for example, take the antibiotic Cipro, commonly used for the treatment of urinary tract infection, commonly used in my field for the treatment of gut-related issues, for example, diverticulitis. So this antibiotic Cipro, if you take it for literally just five days, we know that it will wipe out about 35% of the microbiome. So that's not good. That is literally, if you think about it, about 13 trillion microorganisms that we just destroyed, 13 trillion. That's substantially more than there are stars in the entire Milky Way. And so you wipe them out, and now here we have this 65% that's left behind. Who are they? Who are these guys that survived this bombing? They're the ones that are Cipro-resistant. So we have now selected for the Cipro-resistant guys, many of which we probably don't want, but they're now going to multiply and be far more dominant in your gut. And although your microbiome can definitely recover without question, the issue is that it's never exactly quite the same. Once you take that antibiotic, it's never exactly quite the same. And you can look at your gut. They've done these studies, by the way. You can look at your gut two years later, and you can see if you compare your gut two years later to your gut before the antibiotic, it's not the same. You never got it all the way back. So, you know, another thing that's interesting is that this is sort of a side conversation, but let me just get this out real quick. When we take antibiotics, it's completely intuitive to take a probiotic after an antibiotic. I 100% get it. And that was my recommendation for years and years. You know, you wipe out the bacteria, the, you wipe out 35% of your microbiome, and you want to bring in the good guys, which is what you have in a probiotic to try to restore it. But actually, what's interesting, this is why we have to do study. Just because it feels like it makes sense doesn't mean that it necessarily is the right choice. This is why we have to do research. And so there was a study that was published in the journal Cell that came out in September of 2018, so less than a year ago. And basically in this study, they took a look to see what happens when we take a probiotic versus not take a probiotic after antibiotics. And what they found is that if you take an antibiotic and do nothing, then it takes about a month to start to really get back to where you were before in terms of restoring your microbiome. But if you take an antibiotic and then you chase it with a probiotic, you actually drag that process on for several months. It can take a long time for you to actually get your microbiome back to where it was before. And the idea is that when you take this antibiotic and you wipe out 35% of your microbiome, you have this gap, you have this hole that you created and if you take probiotics and basically start to take them immediately afterwards, the probiotics will sort of take up residence in a way, but the probiotics never stick. They never stick. They're never a permanent part of your microbiome. So if they can't stick, all they're doing is kind of holding space until your good guys can get back in there. And so in this study, it gave the appearance that generally speaking, after antibiotics, we actually should not take probiotics. So my current recommendation for most people, not to say that there's not people that I recommend probiotics to, but my current recommendation is for most people to focus on diet, which means a whole food plant-based diet with maximum diversity of plants. And the second thing that I recommend is a prebiotic. 
So to me, that's where rather than a probiotic, which is the actual live bacteria, the live microorganisms, my recommendation is a prebiotic, which is basically the food that feeds the healthy bacteria. So in this case, we are actually energizing and empowering the good guys in your gut to grow back faster than the bad guys. That's why a prebiotic can be helpful in that situation. So with regard to the immune system, 70% of your immune system lives in your gut, 70%. Right there, just a single layer of cells, a fraction of the diameter of a follicle of hair from your head separates your microbiome from 70% of the immune system. And they are in constant communication with each other. One of the ways that they talk to each other is with these short chain fatty acids that I'm telling you about. The short chain fatty acids actually help the immune system to be optimized and function the way that it's supposed to. Because what we don't want when there is disarray or confusion within the immune system, you basically are going to have it go in one of two directions. Either it's jumpy and it's too much. If it's jumpy and it's too much, you get either allergic disease where it's reacting to outside stimulus or it's autoimmune disease where it is reacting to your own body and for whatever reason, deciding that your own body is the enemy and needs to be destroyed. So a jumpy immune system is bad. It gives you allergic disease and autoimmune disease. But the flip side is an immune system that is not reacting and not doing its job. And in that case, what you get is you get the potential for infection and even the potential, believe it or not, for cancer. Because we have abnormal cells. That's a part of who we are. Our body is not perfect when we multiply and divide our cells. It's actually rather common for precancerous or cancerous cells to be created, but the body has a mechanism to clear them out before they cause a problem. The part where we make a mistake is if we fail to identify that they exist and we fail to clear them out, then we are giving them a chance to multiply, divide, and over the course of many years, turn into something that's dangerous. Okay. And I also think that something that maybe people haven't thought about is when you should wash your hands, because if you touch something that has a virus on it, and then tell me if this process is wrong, but this is how I understand it. Then you touch your face, your mouth, and it gets in your mouth. And then does it go through your digestive tract and your microbiome? And that's how you get sick? Or is that a too simplified of a version? In some cases, I mean, in, in, we can't say that we always know exactly the way that infections are transmitted. In some cases, it's through human touch, it's through contact. In some cases, it's through the air, like a cough or a sneeze, something like that. And so there's a number of different ways that that could potentially happen. But I think the key with regard to what you're talking about is that our microbiome, part of what it does is protect us. So it's not just the immune system that actually is responsible for protecting us from infection. It's also the healthy bacteria that live inside of us. And they have the ability to crowd out and suppress unhealthy microorganisms. Let me give you an example. There is a yeast called candida. And candida can cause thrush. It can cause injury of the esophagus. You can find it in a yeast infection. And also it can cause rash on the body. So Canada can be a bad player. It can be problematic. And many people ask, well, should I do like some sort of special Canada diet to starve out the Canada? And what's interesting is they have this study that was published a few years ago where 
they gave people antibiotics and they've tracked their microbiome day by day on the antibiotics. And what they saw is that when you take an antibiotic, you see a decline in the population of the bacteria, right? So we talked about Cipro, 35% loss. So day by day, you are seeing a decline of the bacterial populations. And going in the exact opposite direction, you see the rise of the fungi because they compete with each other. So if you wipe out the good guys, you're going to allow the rise of the bad guy. And what was interesting is then when they stopped the antibiotic, you allowed the good guys to restore. And as the good guys restore, down go the candida, down go the bad guy. And so the thing from my perspective is that we have this instinct as humans to decimate our enemies. I mean, I hate to say this, but like, just look at human history. That's what we always seem to do. It's like, destroy the enemy, kill it. And it doesn't just mean bacteria, but that is part of it. You know, we, we have always done that. And, you know, you go back to the 19th century, the 1800s, and the top causes of death were infections. So we basically worked to try to find solutions to this infection problem that we have. And here we are. We found solutions. Infections aren't killing people the way that they were before. But have we taken it too far? Have we over-sterilized our world? Have we done too much to decimate the bacteria? And I would argue that the answer is yes. And the same is true when we talk about this yeast, this candida. People ask me all the time, what should I do to kill the candida? My answer is, why are we trying to kill the candida? Why don't we just empower the good guys? Why don't we just try to get good, more good bacteria? Because they will. we saw in this study that the good guys will suppress the bad guy. So why don't we just focus on that as opposed to trying to kill, kill, kill? Because when we kill, like the antibiotics, we see that there's consequences. I think the thing that most people are probably thinking right now is, yeah, okay, taking antibiotics frequently is not good. So they decide, okay, well, I'm going to take less antibiotics. And this is something that I've actually struggled with is I am so averse to taking antibiotics that I'll be sick for like six weeks before I decide to actually take one. And I really don't want to take one, but I'm not getting better. So that seems a bit extreme to be sick for that long before actually taking one. So like, when should somebody take an antibiotic? When is it actually the right time to take one? I think that the key here is that we need to have verification that you have a condition that is active, acute, that requires the antibiotic for treatment, that there are no alternative options. And the most importantly, that this is not spurious liberal use of antibiotics. You know, if you want to cut down on the use of antibiotics in our country, then we need to start by looking back to that there are estimates that literally up to 75% of prescribed antibiotics were completely unnecessary. Wow. And so if you take that 75%, you know, for example, the person who goes to the doctor and has a sore throat and gets a Z-Pack and they never needed the Z-Pack in the first place because it was a virus. And that accomplished nothing other than damaging their microbiome. So, and I think it's within reason to acknowledge that there are probably infections that we have that will run their own course and that you don't need an antibiotic for. For example, in my field, you know, if you go hypothetically to Mexico and you get Montezuma's revenge with E. coli, let's say that it specifically is E. coli that causes your gastroenteritis. So you have an explosive diarrhea. All right. It's not fun. Don't get me wrong. It's not fun. And your instinct is to take antibiotics for that particular thing. 
But the vast majority of people will get better without requiring antibiotics. So in most cases, you don't need to do it. And when they've studied whether or not it makes sense to take antibiotics in that specific scenario, all it does is get you better by literally one day. That's it. It buys you one day. So is it worth it for that? And this is where I can't give categorical sweeping advice. I don't want to create an environment where we are opposed to antibiotics because antibiotics save lives every single day. I've seen it a million times in my career. They save lives. But it needs to be appropriate use of antibiotics for the minimal duration necessary and only in a situation where that is the right choice. And so I really think that what this conversation is about is about having that discussion with your doctor and asking those questions. Do I really need this antibiotic? What are my alternative choices? What happens if I don't take this antibiotic? And it's not that you're being a pain in the tail. You're just asking good questions to determine whether or not it makes sense. We shouldn't go in deciding ahead of time that we're not going to take it because that would be kind of silly. We should listen to our doctor and have a conversation. But I do think that asking those questions and then making an informed choice is reasonable. Okay. So we were talking about diet and how eating the right foods can help the good guys flourish and eating the bad foods won't let the good guys flourish. And we've talked about whole foods, plant-based diets, but there's more specific information that I'm sure people want to know, like what specifically should they be eating? Like, are there specific foods that have fiber that they really should be eating or are there foods that they should avoid? The way that I see it is this. Every single unique food, plant food, that exists is going to have a mix of vitamins, minerals, unique types of fiber, phytochemicals that are going to offer you personally a unique package that is good for your health and going to offer a unique package that feeds and nourishes your microbiome. Every single plant will offer a unique package. And there was this study that was done by this scientist at Rutgers. His name is Wai Ping Zhao. And it was fascinating because the study was intended to be about, and it, it was published under this concept. It was intended to be about how fiber prevents type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. And he showed that. He showed very clearly in the study that fiber prevents type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. And, you know, frankly, in our country, 97% of people don't meet the minimal daily standard of fiber. We're like wildly, pathetically low. But what was fascinating in this study that he did is that he showed the way that fiber is processed because fiber doesn't just necessarily go in the mouth and come out like a torpedo out of the bottom. Fiber, many types, specifically soluble fiber, which is prebiotic, is actually consumed, metabolized by your gut bacteria. And this is where the short chain fatty acids that we're talking about, this is where they come from, this prebiotic fiber. If you want them, you have to consume prebiotic fiber. And what was cool about the study is that he showed that each type of fiber has essentially attached to it a guild of bacteria, a guild, meaning essentially a team. The breakdown and processing of fiber requires a team of microbes, and each type of fiber will be different. And so when you consume different types of fiber from different types of plants, that's how you build a microbiome 
that has the diversity of different teams of microbes all well-constructed to help you to process and digest your food and get the most out of it. And that entire concept of, hey, each plant is unique and has unique properties and will bring benefits to you, it all it, it's fascinating. And what's amazing about it is it all played out in this study called the American Gut Project by this guy named Rob Knight, who's one of my science heroes. He's in San Diego. And basically, this is an international study. It's not just the U.S. of people who basically subject themselves. We call it citizen scientists. They subject themselves to the study where they fill out a survey about their lifestyle, and then they submit a stool specimen, which allows us to analyze their microbiome. So, so far, there have been well over 11,000 people that have participated in the American Gut Project. And it allowed him for the first time to ask the question that we've all been dying to have the answer to, which is that in a massive study, the, ma the largest study of date to connect lifestyle and our microbiome. What part of our lifestyle is the greatest predictor of a healthy gut microbiome? And the answer to that question was the diversity of plants in your diet. The single greatest determinant of a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in your diet. And when you take the data, that finding on that level with this massive population study, the largest of its kind, powerful information. And you combine that with these other studies, for example, this Wai Ping Zhao study, looking at these guilds or these teams that break down each individual plant fiber, it all starts to make sense. Every single plant has unique properties that it wants to offer you. Every single plant has something special that it can do for your microbiome. And to categorically eliminate plants, for example, to eliminate legumes or to categorically eliminate whole grains is to deprive your gut of the nourishment that it would receive from that specific group of foods. And you create a hole in your diet that you can't fill by consuming more veggies of different types because you're missing out on the entire category of legumes that has these unique properties and you're now missing out on it. So legumes is probably one of the number one foods people should add into their diet if they're not eating it already? I would absolutely make that one of the top foods. And what's beautiful about it is they're dirt cheap. They're dirt cheap. How are you going to jack up the price on legumes? They've been so vilified and everyone makes fun of them. And, and yet there are these studies that exist where the professional scientists, people that do this for a living, take a database and they control for all of the available factors. And they ask the question, what promotes longer life expectancy? What promotes a longer life? And what they find is legumes. They control for all the other factors. And what they find is beans emerge as determining a longer life. They prevent heart disease, the number one cause of death. They prevent cancer, the number two cause of death. Go down the line at the top 10 causes of death. And most of them that are lifestyle related, you will see that they get better by consuming legumes. And so to me, it's kind of crazy that we vilify them, particularly the grounds on which we're vilifying them, like to say that they're not ancestral foods. Okay, that's whack. Um, <laughs> there's literally, seriously, there's literally a study from 35,000 years ago where they found evidence of legumes in the caveman's teeth. I'm pretty sure that if it's stuck in his teeth, he was freaking eating it. You know what I mean? That's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. Um, and, and that's a silly reason to make your food selections. Those guys, if we're talking about 10,000 years ago, their life expectancy was 28 years of age. 
So if that's your role model for your diet, I don't know what to tell you. Seriously. But then we get into like all these other arguments of, oh, they're inflammatory foods. Really? Where's the proof for that? Where's the proof that these are inflammatory foods? Because when we measure someone's CRP, their CRP declines when they consume these foods. And the CRP is an inflammatory marker. Is it because they have gas and bloating? That's not inflammation. That's gas and bloating. Gas and bloating is not inflammation. So just because people develop gas and bloating has nothing to do with inflammation. Believe it or not, what that is, is their body is learning to adapt and process that food. They are building the appropriate team to help them to process and digest their food. And in the beginning, when you start to ramp up your fiber or you start to ramp up your FODMAPs, which are the parts of our food that can produce gas and bloating that have been in many ways inappropriately vilified because they're actually prebiotic. When you ramp up these healthy parts of your food, the fiber and the FODMAPs, you're going to have some gas. But that's your body adapting to what's going on and preparing to be really, really, really good at processing your food. And now it's like funny because if you went back to the version of me that was eating steaks and like Philly cheesesteaks all the time, I could not eat beans without having gas. And frankly, sometimes having like fold you over type abdominal pain, honestly. And now I'm in a place where I crave them. I love them. I want as many of them as possible. I build monstrous salads. If you follow my Instagram feed and you follow my stories, a lot of times I will actually like shoot a video of my salad at lunchtime. And I like to put music over the top of it because I like music and I just think it's fun. But if you check out that video, you will see like four or five different types of beans. And I'm like doing multiple scoop bowls. And I feel great. Like I feel amazing. It's like totally satisfying food. So I could go off on whole grains too. I'm sorry that I got a little worked up there. <laughs> but the point from my perspective is that these are health promoting foods and to vilify them and to eliminate them based upon weak science is to ignore the myriad of studies that show us that when you eat these foods, people live longer, they live healthier, and that there are tremendous health benefits. So most people listening to this podcast don't eat 100% whole foods plant-based. Like most people listening, they're really interested in being healthier. And they're, they're somewhere on the spectrum of eating like a keto type diet or eating a whole foods plant-based diet. And, you know, most athletes, especially cyclists, like the, I see people posting pictures of their food and there is a lot of fruits and vegetables on their plate, but they're also still eating meat and dairy. And they're, you know, they probably want to know, okay, well, if I'm eating all these good prebiotic foods and all these diverse fruits and vegetables, is it okay if I still want to eat a little bit of meat and how much is okay? And, and does that actually help or hurt your microbiome? Right. So first of all, I want to say that I love these people. Yes. I love these people. I love these people listening who are motivated to make dietary changes and because these are the ideal people. They are motivated. They want to do better. They're looking for solutions. And it's not their fault if the system feeds them certain diets that turn out to be not as good as initially advertised, aka fad. So with regard to the specific question of what does meat and dairy do for the microbiome, I would ask people, and you can put it in the show notes if you like, to take a look at this study by Dr. Lawrence David from 2014 in Nature that I was referring to, where people do five days of an animal product-based diet. And ask yourself, so what is that doing for the microbiome? 
if that's what they're eating? What is that doing for the microbiome? Is it providing any benefit to the microbiome? Is it making it stronger? Where is the redeeming quality that we should be searching for? And you just don't see it. You just don't see it. What you see is you see decimation. You see destruction. And there are additional studies looking at, you know, and let me just say, it is not just saturated fat that can harm the microbiome. There are a lot of things that can damage the microbiome in our diet. But the things that damage our microbiome, you're not finding in your plant food. The things that damage the microbiome definitely can include processed foods and the chemicals that we humans mix with plants to create unhealthy food. But when it comes to natural foods, whether it's grass-fed, hormone-free, antibiotic-free or not, it still contains saturated fat. And saturated fat has been shown in a series of studies, each coming from a different angle and finding the exact same result, that saturated fat causes harm to the microbiome. That is not good for the microbiome, that it actually increases intestinal permeability, causing winky gut, which leads to the release of bacterial endotoxin. And bacterial endotoxin is what drives inflammation throughout the body. That's what you get from saturated fat from animal products in your diet. So from my perspective, unless you can show me what it's bringing to the table, and I don't love the idea of like, okay, well, let's fixate on this one nutrient, right? Let me pick out this one thing. Because then we can fall into the trap of picking out one thing in a bowl of poison. Oh, well, now we should drink this bowl of poison. No, it's a bowl of poison. Keep that away from me. I think the point from my perspective is when we look at the whole food, does it provide a health benefit or does it not provide a health benefit? If it does provide a health benefit, I want it. I want more. If it's not, if it's taking health away, then to me, that's not something that we should be striving to get more of in our life. And so for me, I personally believe that we should all be looking at ourselves and asking the question when we hear this, when we hear, when we look at this Lawrence David study, when we hear that the number one predictor is diversity of plants, when we talk about Liping Zhao and how fiber is preventing type 2 diabetes, the studies that we're talking about. When we hear these things, it should motivate each one of us to move towards a more whole foods, plant-based diet. Wherever you are, wherever you're coming from, from my perspective, I want to see people move the needle. I personally don't view this in absolute terms. This is not an all or nothing phenomenon. You don't need to be 100% or bust. But here's what I honestly believe. I honestly believe that the best place is 100%. And I honestly believe that as people make changes, if you are, you know, the average American right now is 10% plant-based. That's ridiculous, right? So if you go from 10% to 30%, I am jumping for joy. I am thrilled and I can't wait to give you a high five. And if you go from 30% to 60%, again, like I'll give you the biggest hug and be so happy and excited. But what I honestly believe is that as you get closer and closer to 90%, which I think all of us should be striving to at least 90%, as you get closer and closer to that, you're going to feel so good that you're going to want more. And that's, that's what happened with me. So what amount do we make room for? That's a personal choice. If you say, you know, well, what are they doing in the blue zones, right? The blue zones are 90% or more plant-based. So I think it's within reasonable say we should all be at least 90% plant-based, which is a dramatic change for most Americans. But again, do I think that 90% is better than 100%? No, absolutely not. I think we should keep pushing towards 100% if we can, but it's a personal choice. I wouldn't be mad at someone that says, Doc, I've made these changes. I've gone from 10% to 70%. 
but I just don't know if I can go beyond this. I kind of feel like do your best and move the needle in the right direction and see where this takes you. That's how I feel. I love it. That's the message that I portray as well is, is yeah, just like trend in the right direction and do the best you can and just work on getting better and work on improving. And if you get all the way there, that's awesome. But as long as you're better than before, that's really awesome too. And also there's a ripple effect to that because once you start changing your lifestyle habits, the people around you start seeing it too. Like you mentioned, you saw your your now wife and inspired you. And another question I actually have is a lot of times people that talk about changing their diet and who have changed their diet to a whole foods, plant-based diet, talk about mental clarity. You get better mental clarity. And I thought maybe it's because of better blood flow to the brain, but could that also be from your microbiome changing too? Yeah, 100% could. In fact, you know, we've also witnessed the um, emergence of ADHD, uh, attention deficit disorder. And what's interesting is that you can actually correct ADHD with plant fiber. So how does that work? And what they believe is that it's the short chain fatty acids, which again is one of the big themes of our conversation, that are produced and actually cross the blood brain barrier and help to regulate brain function. And I will tell you that I recently wrote a book and it was like a super, super intensive process because I work full time as a doctor and I didn't, I didn't change that. Wow. All right. So I'm, I'm working full time as a gastroenterologist, did not scale back my clinic. I take care of all my patients. I am the most productive doctor in my, in my practice. But in addition to that, I decided to be a little crazy and write a book. And I will tell you that there are two things, actually, you know what? Three things that allowed me to write this book. Number one, this was a pure passion project. If I was doing this because of money, there's no way I would do it because it, I would be subjecting myself to too much pain for the money, honestly. But for me, I really, really strongly believe in this message. And it's about writing something that can spread this message that I'm so passionate about and that even for my own patients who come to my office, they only get 30 minutes with me. So what I love is that just like having this conversation with you, writing a book allows me to put it all out there. I'm putting it all out there and don't have to hold back. And I can dive deep into these topics even more so than I can on this podcast. So I love that. There's, a, there's this passion that I had that I had to put it out there. I had to do this. The second thing is my wife, it was, there was not a bone in her body that was opposed to me doing it. Every single part of her wanted to see me write this book. And if I didn't have that full support of my wife, there's no way. There's no way I could have done this. I needed that. And so I'm, I will eternally be grateful to my wife for the support that she's given me through this process. And the third thing is practicing what I preach. So, you know, I tell people diversity of plants, whole food, plant-based diet. And I'm going to tell you that from the guy that was 235, I lost 45 pounds and that was without going to the gym or exercising because I felt like I was too busy. I had little kids. And then about eight months ago, I got back in the gym and now I'm not exaggerating. I feel I'm almost 40. I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life by far, which has been amazing for me because I remember how hard I used to work. I'm literally working out. I'm not exaggerating. 60 to 90 minutes total per week right now 
And there were days, 60 to 90 minutes total is what I'm doing in terms of exercise. And there were days in the past where I was working 60 minutes in a day and not getting the results. And I really, really think that my, my diet is what did it. And when it comes to writing this book, I would not have the mental stamina, the clarity in order to be able to get this done if I wasn't eating a whole food plant-based diet. I really, truly believe that this allowed me to actually facilitate a crazy idea, which is to write a book and still be a full-time medical doctor. So, and I still don't know why I did that. It was a little bit rid- ridiculous, but. What, when is the book coming out or is it out already? No, the book is coming out. So <laughs> this is such a sore subject for me because I'm not very patient. It's definitely not a strong point for me. And the book is written. We are in the process of editing it right now. I'm very proud of it. I really love it. I really believe in it. But the book won't come out for another year. So, and that's yeah, the that nature process. of the publishing process. Yeah. yeah. So, hey guys, can't wait for you to pre-order it in like March. <laughs> well, just tell us when it does. And then we'll also have you back on the show when the book comes out to help promote it. Oh, that'd be awesome. I would love to do that. So, but anyway, I, I do think though, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not here to like promote the book. Obviously it's a year away, but I am here to talk about this whole foods plant-based diet that I really believe in, which is the same thing that I'm talking about in the book. And I really, truly believe that without that diet, there's no way I could have done this. There's no, that's what I'm saying is that the amount of energy and stamina and focus that I needed in order to get this done was ridiculous. And I was able to do it because of the way I was living. And I I should add, it was not purely food. I was very disciplined. I went to bed early. I went to bed early every night. I was not drinking any alcohol. Did you get up and early so, in the morning to write? Is that what yeah. you did? Okay. Yeah, because for me personally, my clarity is best first thing in the morning. You give me two hours in the morning and I can do about, about eight hours worth of work. So I would wake up at 5.30 and at Starbucks, it's kind of funny, there's this Starbucks that's right near my house. And um, I don't think they had any clue what I was doing. <laughs> you know, I'm like sitting there I'm writing a book and I don't think they had any clue what I was doing. They, I, don't, I still don't think they know. I think they thought that I was like doing business, but it's kind of weird because I kept showing up at 530 in the morning, like every single day. And so it's just kind of interesting. And when the book comes out, I can't wait to bring a copy down there and be like, surprise. That's what I was doing. Yeah. Well, Produced I, here. I have one last question before we go. And it's about fermented foods. Yeah. Um, you mentioned kombucha as well. I've heard mixed things about kombucha. Is kombucha actually something that is going to help people's microbiome? Well, you know, nutrition is always about substitution, right? So it's, there's always like, okay, you're taking this and replacing it with what? So if you tell me that kombucha is better than drinking like a traditional glass of water, honestly, probably not. Like straight water is pretty much the healthiest beverage that exists. And we still take it for granted because we have unlimited supply and it's free. And so it becomes less attractive to us, which is kind of silly because it's it's the healthiest beverage that exists. I honestly think that when it comes to kombucha, it definitely can be a part of a healthy diet, right? So if you take soda and you replace your soda, whether it's diet or regular soda, it doesn't matter. You replace soda with a little bit of kombucha, that's a healthy substitution. But the hype train is a little bit excessive. The idea that this is going to fix all your problems by itself is ridiculous. It's not going to. Can it be a part of a healthy diet? You're going whole foods, plant-based. You have your kombucha in there. And by the way, I want to mention consumed in moderation. More is not necessarily better. 
consumed in moderation. And from my perspective, I always dilute my kombucha. Hmm. So because it's very acidic and the acidity erodes your teeth. So I always like to me, I get maybe three or four ounces of kombucha when I do drink it. And then I'll throw in another eight ounces of water along with some ice. So the kombucha really is about, you know, a third of the actual beverage and then the rest of it is water to really do that. And the flavor is still there. You get plenty of flavor. It's just that you're reducing the acidity. So I think that the bottom line when it comes to kombucha is that it can be a part of a healthy diet, but I would not pretend that this is some silver bullet or that this is the backbone of a healthy diet. It's simply not. The backbone of a healthy diet is consuming a whole foods plant-based diet with maximum diversity of plants. And when you're doing that, these little things like adding in kombucha or intermittent fasting, you know, where you extend the fast a little bit into the morning, these types of things can add benefit. But let's not pretend that these things are going to be simply fine and you're sitting there and eating the standard American diet. And sourdough bread and miso soup, those two are also fermented. Something, and I know this is kind of splitting hairs, but I always wonder when they say, do you want whole grain bread or do you want sourdough bread? Like I personally really like sourdough bread. So yeah. is, is that going to provide a benefit as well? Yeah. The sourdough, because it's baked, there are not live bacteria. All right. So that's the downside of the sourdough. When you compare it to, for example, kombucha, which does have live bacteria in it. But the key here is that the fermentation process alters the food. And in most cases, it seems to make it even healthier than when it started. And so the acidity of the sourdough is actually the production of healthy acids that occurs by these bacteria. And in that process, they're consuming some of the parts of the food that we don't particularly want. So like, for example, sourdough is rather low in gluten because the gluten is being consumed by these microbes. Hmm. And so I personally think that sourdough is probably a little bit healthier than whole grain bread, but I haven't seen any study of the microbiome that has directly compared the two. And I do think that there's a place like I don't think that we should be striving to eat as much bread as possible, but I do think that there's a place where there's value to having some bread in our diet because it's a source of whole grains. And we as Americans tend to be very, very deficient when it comes to whole grains. So when you go, for example, completely gluten-free, when people go completely gluten-free, that's the risk. The risk is you eliminate the gluten, you throw out the main source of whole grains. And in the process, you don't replace it with something else that is also a whole grain, but gluten-free. That's the issue. And that, and that creates issues for the microbiome. We have evidence that going gluten-free can damage the microbiome. And we also have evidence that going gluten-free increases your risk of developing coronary artery disease. So it's not something that we should just casually do for the fun or because our friends are doing it. It's something that we should be conscious of. If you have celiac disease, clearly you need to be gluten-free for the rest of your life. There's no wiggle room on that if you have celiac disease. But for the majority of people who are going gluten-free, they probably should not. Does alcohol destroy your microbiome? We haven't had a great study to prove what low to moderate amounts of alcohol consumption do to the microbiome. But what we do know is this, clear-cut, without question, binge alcohol consumption causes severe damage to the microbiome, without question. And I actually, I haven't seen a study yet to prove this, but I can't wait for this study to happen. I'm convinced that a hangover is our body recovering from the damage that's done to our microbiome. Because if you think about it, a hangover is actually rather similar to the way that you feel when you have jet lag in a lot of ways. 
And jet lag is the fact that your microbiome is thrown out of whack by the change in time because your microbiome has a circadian rhythm. It's used to certain times of waking and sleeping. And when you, you know, change by several hours, you are altering that microbiome and that's why you feel jet lag. Then it takes several days for your body to recover. When you consume an excessive amount of alcohol, when you binge drink, it's not just rehydration, right? You can drink all the water you want the next day. You're still going to feel hungover, right? So that to me is likely due to damage to the microbiome. Now, is one glass of, say, red wine once in a while good? This is a complicated question. And where I stand on it is, so let me say, first of all, full discretion, I enjoy having a glass of red wine once in a while. Okay. So there's no opposition from me. If you think that you want to have a glass of red wine once in a while, like I'm out at dinner with my wife, I'm going to have a glass of wine. Can you define once in a while? Uh, not every day. Okay. <laughs> not every day. Uh, so to me, you know, like obviously this is a spectrum or like shades of gray, right? Mm -hmm. So once in a while could be once a month. For some people, it could be once a week. For me, I'm less than once a week. Mm -hmm. That's just because it's usually when me and my wife go out to dinner and I'm, we're having a nice dinner and I want to enjoy something with that. So there's nothing wrong with you if you want to enjoy a glass of wine. That's, that's up to you. But does it provide a health benefit? That's what we're really talking about here, right? Does it provide a health benefit? So there's two parts to that. First of all, there's the part that it could be very harmful. There's associations with wine consumption and cancer development. Not specifically wine, but alcohol in general. There's associations between alcohol and cancer development. We also know that alcohol kills bacteria, right? I mean, if I want to sterilize my kitchen counter, rubbing alcohol will do that. So what do you think happens when you pour alcohol down into the densest population of bacteria on the planet, which is your colon? It's hard for me to argue that that would be good. <laughs> But the one argument that people make, this is, and I apologize because I think I'm about to open up a can of worms. Is that okay? Yeah, open it up. Okay. All right. The one argument that people will make is that red wine can prevent coronary artery disease. And there actually is a rational basis for how that works. And it involves new data that have emerged in the last few years out of the Cleveland Clinic called TMAO. All right. So to summarize a relatively complex topic in, because this is a can of worms and I'm trying to, I want to cut to the chase as much as I can, but it's not easy because it's a little complicated. TMAO was identified at the Cleveland Clinic as an independent risk factor, meaning that you could control for whether or not they have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, type two diabetes, whether or not they smoke, whether or not they're obese, you control for those factors. And TMAO by itself predicts whether or not, not only you develop a heart attack, it also predicts your risk of dying from a heart attack. And if your number is higher, it increases your risk of dying, period, relative, whether it's a heart attack or not. They have associated TMAO with a number of different serious conditions, not just heart attacks, not just coronary artery disease, but also stroke, atrial fibrillation, congestive heart failure, chronic kidney disease, kidney failure peripheral vascular disease, type 2 diabetes. Okay, that's a lot, and that's a little scary. But what's fascinating is the science, because they worked backwards to discover that TMAO is deeply connected to your gut microbiome. And we're talking about postbiotics. Postbiotics are produced by the bacteria when you feed them, right? So we talked about short-chain fatty acids being good, because your bacteria produce these postbiotic short-chain fatty acids. TMAO 
is an example of a bad postbiotic. And what they found is that when you consume carnitine, which is found in red meat and in energy drinks, or choline, which is found in meat, dairy, eggs, when you consume those things, your gut microbes process them and they produce TMA. And TMA floats to your liver where it's produced into TMAO. And again, TMAO has been deeply associated with these different conditions that I mentioned, including coronary artery disease. Does TMAO directly cause coronary artery disease or is it just an association? Well, when they inject TMAO into a person, their clotting factors go through the roof. So it seems very clear that TMAO is actually the direct cause. Now, here's the issue because the original question is getting back to red wine and whether or not red wine can be good. The issue is that there are a number of ways that you can try to cut your TMAO exposure. One of the ways that you can reduce the amount of TMAO that you produce from carnitine and from choline is through the consumption of red wine. This is why red wine may protect us from heart disease. Guess what else is shown to reduce TMAO production? Balsamic vinegar, olive oil, chocolate, dark chocolate. So basically, I just named the Mediterranean diet for the most part. So that's cool, right? But then alcohol causes cancer. So we're stuck with this scale of like, well, what's better? Better to protect ourselves from heart disease or better to avoid because it causes cancer? And I think that the answer to this question lies in a fascinating part of this TMAO conversation, which is that they tested a vegan to see what happens with their TMAO because they don't eat red meat, which contains carnitine. And what they found is that this vegan had no TMAO production because they didn't have the microbes to produce it. And to prove that, the vegan was willing to consume a steak in the name of science. And so they actually fed this vegan a steak and they fed the same size steak to an omnivore. And this female omnivore who eats the steak, her TMAO goes from one up to six. It goes up 600%. That's in 24 hours, by the way. The vegan has a TMAO of zero at the beginning and has a TMAO of zero at the end because he doesn't eat the food that produces the microbiome that can produce TMAO. So the point from my perspective is why would you mess around with trying to neutralize the negative consequences of the food in your diet? Why try to neutralize the negative consequences of the food in your diet when you could just eat health-promoting foods from the very get-go, which we see if you eat properly, you can't even produce TMAO. It's impossible for you to make it. I think that's really interesting. I haven't heard that before, so thanks for sharing that. I think that might be why, honestly, in the Dean Ornish study that we talk about that you reverse coronary artery disease. I honestly think that that may be a part of it. The problem is that TMAO wasn't on the radar until very, very recently. And that study was done in the 1990s. Awesome. Well, I could definitely keep going, but I think we should probably wrap it up because it's definitely getting late over where you are. <laughs> but thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your passion and your knowledge and your inspiration with my audience. And I know that some of them probably will reach out to you. So where's the best place for them to find you? First of all, thank you so much for having me on. 
Uh, You're so welcome. (laughs) It's been great having this conversation. I enjoy it. We could probably go on for another hour, hour and a half. And people who want to find me, just come to Instagram, the Gut Health MD. You could go to my website. I do have a um, email newsletter too, theguthealthmd.com, and sign up for my newsletter there. And lots of free stuff because why not? You know, honestly, I started the Instagram account three years ago just because I felt compelled to share this message. And that's what it's always been about. And sometimes I go a little bit slower. I don't post quite as much because I'm just, I'm busy and I'm doing my best. But the one thing that you will always get is you're going to get high quality science that's legitimate and that you can really lean on when, you know, it's kind of feels like it's a confusing time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I have to say, I've listened to the show a few times. I recorded it and then I go back and I re-listen to all of my shows. And I am definitely going to listen to this again after Roma does all of the final beautiful audio touches that make this podcast sound so good because there's so much to learn in here. And I really can't wait for Dr. B's book to come out as well. Make sure you give him a follow on Instagram, the Gut Health MD, and he posts a lot of interesting things. He also has a great website, theguthealthmd.com. I have to admit, I pre-recorded a ton of episodes this summer so that I could have a little bit of time off from podcasting, except for the Crush Up Mondays, which I record every single week. And it was pretty nice, but I'm excited to get back into recording some new fresh interviews. And it's been really fun to revisit some of these interviews that I recorded a couple months ago. My parents are in town from Albuquerque, New Mexico, visiting me up in BC right now, and I'm really enjoying that. It's just fun to see my town and also some other places through their eyes. And they come every year, but it's just always a nice time. Thanks again for supporting the show, you guys. Really appreciate you're here. I always love suggestions if you can think of ways that the show could be better. And I don't mind a bit of constructive feedback. So thanks so much again. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.